This is God's word. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, the queen mother, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief among the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation." Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter." But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation." O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, He was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, 
until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Meany, Meany, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Meany, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father in heaven, we do come now seeking your presence, seeking your help, seeking your truth, Father, that it might set us free. Help us to hear Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, there is a saying that maybe you've used, maybe you've heard from time to time, the handwriting is on the wall, uh, which simply means the outcome is certain. Uh, the, the end is inevitable. We know how things are going to turn out, and usually uh, it's not a good thing, is it? Uh, usually when we hear this, it means something bad is about to happen. Our team is, is, is about to lose, or uh, maybe you're about to get fired from your job. Something ominous is about to take place. Uh, the saying is actually taken from uh, uh, Daniel in chapter 5. Except there, as we've just read, it wasn't a saying, it was a reality. There really was a hand that wrote something on the wall. And in it was a message uh, for the king. In it was a message for the exiles of Israel. And in it, I believe, is a message for us uh, tonight. So let's look at it together. There are three scenes I'd like to unpack. Uh, His feast to begin, secondly, his folly as Daniel exposes it, and then thirdly, his fall. So his feast, his folly, and his fall. So first, his feast. In verse 1, we're introduced to uh, a new king, as I mentioned, a man by the name of Belshazzar. And and we know that uh, uh, a lot of time has passed uh, between chapters 4 and chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar has probably been dead for at least 20 years. There's at least 25, maybe as, as, as many as 30 years have passed since that time. Uh, we know from history that three kings followed Nebuchadnezzar in rapid succession. Uh, the third, whose name was Nabonidus, who reigned in Babylon from 556 to 539 B.C., Uh, But interestingly, he didn't always uh, live in Babylon. Uh, For about 10 years, he was elsewhere. And so he appointed his son, uh, Belshazzar, as sort of a vice king. 
which I think helps explain uh, why it is that Belshazzar, in offering these rewards, first to the wise men if they could interpret the hand, and then to Daniel himself, why he offers them third place in the kingdom and not second. They would be third place because he was second and his father was first. Something also of note, uh, when it says in the text in verse 2 and other places that Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's father, uh, it, it can also mean, and I think does mean, predecessor. Uh, so it's, it's uh, language used, but Nebuchadnezzar came before, and he's not his dad, but he's his predecessor. Well, we're told in verse 1 that this king, this vice king who lived in Babylon, uh, made a great feast. It wasn't just a, a, a normal, ordinary feast. It was a, a great feast, and everybody who was anybody was in attendance. And from the perspective of the world, it had everything uh, this world could offer. It had money. It had sex. It had power. It had ambition. It had, had pleasure. Everything that, that a worldly person would want, it, it offered There were concubines, there was uh, endless alcohol, and a seemingly generous king. And the point is he wanted to show off the glory and the splendor of his own kingdom. Indeed, it was very impressive. A thousand people were in attendance. But it had something else, sacrilege. As the king was drinking his wine... He commands that the gold and silver vessels that had been taken years before out of Jerusalem, out of the temple itself, be brought, and that the people at his great feast use these vessels to drink wine. It was as if the king was sticking his nose up at God. It's repeated twice in verses 2 and verse 3, I think, to emphasize this point. It's, it's meant to sting the Israelites hearing this story. It's meant to offend them profoundly that the king would have the audacity to, uh, to use these holy things and to profane them in such a, an offensive way. David Helm in his commentary paints a, a picture, the kind of scene that we might be able to, to, to understand going on here. He says, and with that, Belshazzar, gold goblet in hand, his fingers clenched, as it were, around the God of Israel, decidedly throws back his head in delightful defiance. His neck is now stiff to the heavens as he drinks the wine The king was declaring to everyone that with his hand, he, the king, had a firm grip on God. One can almost envision him pounding his goblet down on the table, wiping his mouth dry, and asking for another. It was a calculated, audacious, stunning act of defiance. But God will not be mocked. Suddenly, there's this hand. Apparently, out of nowhere, it appears on the wall, and King Belshazzar 
as he's feasting, sees it. Now, don't let the, the familiarity of the text numb you to this, how shocking this would have been, how surprising and startling this would have been. He's, he's going about his business, doing his thing, enjoying himself greatly, and suddenly he sees a hand on a wall. And the hand starts moving, and the hand starts writing something. Uh, the great Dutch painter Rembrandt uh, captures this in his painting, Belshazzar's Feast. I encourage you to look it up uh, later tonight. It, it, it captures it so brilliantly because uh, the light shines upon his eyes, and they're, they're wide open in absolute utter shock at this scene. Verse 5, immediately we read, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. No wonder the king's color changed. We might put it like this. He was as white as a ghost. His limbs gave way, we're told. His knees knocked together. Some scholars think this is a, a phrase, a way of saying that he had no control over his bowels. There is, in a sense here, uh, sort of this humor uh, from the perspective of the living God who sits in the heavens and he laughs at the foolish and failed attempts at the kings of the earth who set themselves against God and against his anointed. Well, he calls again his wise men to himself. He promises them, I'll give you purple, I'll give you a gold chain, and I'll make you number three in the kingdom if you can help me make sense of this writing on this wall and what it means. But again, they fail. This is a thread we've seen in our study of Daniel. Time and time again, there's irony here that the so-called wise men of Babylon are unable each and every time to understand these things compared and contrasted with the wisdom of Daniel and Daniel's God. And so the king is perplexed. The king is scared out of his mind. The king is, is paralyzed in fear. Again, now that his interpreters can't make sense of it, his colors changed again, verse 9. And everybody was perplexed, and in walks the queen, not his wife, but the queen mother, someone who probably had been around for a while in the kingdom back in the day of Nebuchadnezzar. And she walks in, and she declares as she greets the king, again with irony, O king, live forever, right? This king, as we know the story, will die that very night. King, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change there is a man, she says, in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. She's referring, of course, uh, to Daniel. This Daniel whom Nebuchadnezzar had, had promoted and appointed and the Lord had used. She is suggesting to him, relax. Call upon Daniel. He's still around. He's still here. Maybe he can help you. That's the feast. Leads secondly to uh, his folly, his folly, as we see Daniel then being brought in before the king in verse 13. Daniel's no longer a teenager. Uh, in fact, he's probably in his 80s by now. So we have this, this, this image of this, this older man, maybe with uh, white hair, maybe uh, walks in slowly. 
It's striking, isn't it, that for the last 65, 70 years, Daniel has been serving in this foreign place. And we only hear of him on a handful of occasions in Daniel. The majority of the time, there he is serving faithfully in these ordinary moments of everyday life. But here he is, called upon once again in the providence of God to interpret a mystery. So he walks in and the king addresses him and says, I've heard about you. I heard stories of you from Nebuchadnezzar. Then he promises the same rewards as he did to his other wise men. And I love Daniel's response. Verse 17. It shows his priority, doesn't it? Verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Daniel doesn't want these rewards from this puppet king. But he does agree to interpret uh, this writing on the wall. He begins by uh, reminding uh, Belshazzar of God's blessing upon Nebuchadnezzar. It was God who promoted Nebuchadnezzar. It was God who blessed Nebuchadnezzar. It was God who lavished Nebuchadnezzar with, with gifts until Nebuchadnezzar became proud in his own heart, and then God acted, as we saw last time in Daniel chapter 4, and humbled him, made him like a beast, until he realized that God is God, and that God is the one who gives kingdoms, and God is the one who takes kingdoms away. And then Daniel uh, really takes advantage of the opportunity, doesn't he? And he he speaks very directly to the king. In fact, in verses 22 and 23, uh, 14 times he says, you or your. You or your. And he points out, doesn't he, the folly of this king. In fact, he points out three different things that the king is guilty of. Uh, first of all, pride. Verse 22, he says, and you his son, or you his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. You have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. That is, you have learned nothing about God's dealings with Nebuchadnezzar. You have not learned from the past that God opposes the proud, nor have you learned the good news that he gives grace to the humble. You have been unteachable, and you are uninterested in learning from history. This is, you see, the epitome and definition of the fool, one who refuses to learn. You have been proud Verse 23, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. You have defied the living God. You have spit in the face of Yahweh. You are proud. He also points out his idolatry in verse 23 in the middle. 
And you, he says, have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Notice, boys and girls, which do not see or hear or know. See, that's the insanity of idolatry. These things that he worshipped are empty, they're hollow, they're dead. Listen to the wise words of Psalm 115 regarding idols. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. Eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. Feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. And those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. We become like that which we worship. You have a proud heart. You've committed idolatry. And thirdly, you've been ungrateful. Listen, the end of verse 23. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. The one who gives you everything, you have purposely ignored You have lived your life as if the God of heaven did not exist. And God will not be silent. God acts. God is moved. Where we see, thirdly, His fall. His fall. Daniel now interprets the handwriting on the wall, the hand you saw. This is sent from God Himself. Verse 25, and this is the writing that was inscribed, meeny, meeny, tekel, and parson. Meeny means in Aramaic, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. This is Nebuchadnezzar's great lesson, which evidently Belshazzar didn't learn. Back in verse 20 and 21, as he's recounting the story of Nebuchadnezzar, he says, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kindly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. Belshazzar, God has numbered your days, and it has come to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. When the living, omniscient, all-knowing God has put your deeds, Belshazzar, on the scale of his divine justice, you have come up empty. You have failed miserably. Parson, your kingdom is divided. It's 
going to be given to the Medes and the Persians. The very thing, remember, that God promised would happen in Nebuchadnezzar's first dream that he had of the image, where the Babylonians, representing gold, would be replaced with silver, the Medes and the Persians. And after ironically promoting Daniel, verse 30, it says, that very night, Belshazzar was killed. History records that on the evening of this great feast, the armies of Darius surrounded mighty Babylon, and while Belshazzar was getting probably drunk with the vessels from God's temple, they were encircling his palace and would that night attack, and he would and in fact was killed. And what's striking is this all happens on one night and in one chapter in Scripture. Chapter 5 is all that we have of Belshazzar. One minute he's feasting, the next he has fallen. His kingdom disappears like a vapor. Indeed, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There'd be no happy ending for Belshazzar like there had been for Nebuchadnezzar. For this king, this was it. Any chance at repentance, any chance at, at listening to the warnings of God was over. What was the message for Israel? And maybe they were tempted to think, all right, God got revenge on his enemy. This king, this evil king, this offensive king, this wicked king got exactly what he deserved. And in a sense, they were absolutely right. But hearing this story wasn't meant to make them happy. It was meant to make Israel humble and mournful. Not only that this king died without faith, but mournful for their own sin. What got Israel into exile in the first place? Why did God act? Why did God punish them? Why did He discipline them? Why did He send them to Babylon at all? Was it not these very same things, these follies that the king committed? Was it not pride and idolatry and ingratitude? Do we not find that over and over again in the Old Testament, that the Israelites were proud and puffed up against the Lord? That they rejected His call and His commands and they worshipped and bowed down to false idols, empty, hollow, dead things in replace of God? Do we not hear them grumbling over and over again, receiving such incredible gifts, but giving God no glory, no honor, no thanks? You see, you see this is Israel's story, their reality, their sin. Listen to the words of Jeremiah, the prophet who prophesied during the days of Judah, leading up to the time when Judah was attacked by Babylon. Jeremiah 2, verses 12 and 13. 
Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Why? For my people, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the living fountain, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They have rejected God. They have rejected the only one who can give them joy, the only one who can give them pleasure, the only one that can give them satisfaction, the only one who can forgive their sins. And not only have they rejected him, they have replaced him with things that can't, with things that have eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, mouths but cannot speak, dumb idols that can do nothing. You see, Israel is no different than Belshazzar. In fact, you could make the argument that they were worse. Belshazzar knew of God's dealings with Nebuchadnezzar through the testimony of others. But what about Israel? Israel knew God up close and personal. They knew His holiness. They had witnessed His power over and over again. They had received His warnings. They were God's special chosen people. Yet still they ran after spiritual concubines and praised dead idols of wood and and stone. You you see, the the shock of the story, the shock of Daniel chapter 5, is not that Belshazzar was so evil, nor was it that God punished him for his sin. The shock of Daniel 5 is that Israel was still alive at all. The shock of Daniel 5 that you're meant to feel, that I'm meant to feel, is that that you and I are alive. That God hasn't struck us down because of these same sins. Pride and idolatry and ingratitude of inserting ourselves in the place of God of listening to the call of this culture and this world and these counterfeit gods of of money, sex, power, pleasure, and of receiving everything from God, every breath, and yet living as if God were not in control, as if He didn't give us any of it. I think Daniel... 5 points us to Romans 1. For the wrath of God, Paul says, verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up and the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. This is the Bible's indictment against mankind. Regardless of background, regardless of experience. You see, when God weighs our deeds on the balance of His divine justice, we will be found wanting. The handwriting is on the wall. Left in our sin will perish forever. Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. We're dying and we will be judged. Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Yet, there's good news for us who are still alive. The kindness of God has been poured out upon us even towards the wicked, which is meant, Paul says in Romans 2, 4, to lead us to repentance. Here's the good news. Although your deeds and my deeds don't measure up, not even close, there is one whose deeds did measure up and do measure up, and those were the deeds of Jesus. When God weighed Jesus on the balance of his divine justice, his son Jesus Christ was found to be spotless. Yet inexplicably for us, he went to a cross to become punished in our place for our sins. And the Bible says this evening, God is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the good news is also urgent news tonight. The door is still open for you to come and meet Jesus Christ by faith alone. But do not presume upon God's grace. Come to Him. Throw yourself upon Him right now. By faith, go to Jesus Christ and He will forgive your sins. He will wash away every one of your iniquities. He went to a cross for you and for me to take our place. All those who call upon Him, all those who flee to Him. Remember the words of the queen, the queen mother? Referring to Daniel, verse 11, she said, There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. That could be translated, the spirit of the holy God. We might 
see Jesus here? There is a man in your kingdom. There is a man who has come into our kingdom, who has taken on our flesh, in whom is the Spirit of the living God. In fact, indeed, he came for rebels like us. Proud, idolaters, and ungrateful. And he went to a cross and he gave himself as a ransom for many. And he calls anyone to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved from their iniquities and their sins, no matter how bad it's been, no matter how ugly those sins are. He invites you to come. One day there's going to be a great feast. It's going to be a lot better than the feast that Belshazzar was able to, to throw. At that feast, all of Christ's redeemed children are going to be sitting at the table and there's not going to be sin. There's not going to be pride. We're not going to be praising an earthly man. We're going to be praising the God-man. We're going to be praising and enjoying King Jesus forever and ever. And everyone around that table, as someone has said, will know that the only reason that we're there is grace. Grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, we have now an opportunity to tell others this urgent news. It's been appointed for a man to die, and after that comes judgment. And we have the best news in the world of a Savior who came for sinners like us to die in our place and rise again. Let's tell the good news and let's celebrate it together. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are worthy because you love the world so much that you sent your only begotten Son that we might believe in him and enjoy eternal life. Father, would you lead those listening or watching who do not know you to yourself? Would you teach them of the urgency of the matter? It could be this very night that we are called to give an account. Lord, that day that Belshazzar woke up and got ready for this feast, I'm guessing he didn't think that that would be the day that he would die. And Lord, we don't think in those terms either. We usually don't think, well, this might be the day that I die. This might be the day that I have to give an account. Father, when we stand before you exposed, we're going to be found wanting because nothing in our hands we bring. Yet when we come before you in Christ Jesus, we have everything that we need because simply to the cross we cling. In Jesus Christ, we have all that we need. And so we thank you for him we pray that you would help us then to share this news with our neighbors, with our friends, our family members, our loved ones, and our enemies, Lord, that your church would be built 
Father, that we at that great feast one day would, would marvel, why was I a guest? And that we might see people at that feast who you gave us the privilege to tell. Father, this is your work, yet you call us to participate in it. Do it in us and through us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Our final uh, hymn as we close out this Lord's Day is How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. We're going to sing all six verses. 469, stand.
Amen. Now receive God's parting blessing. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship, the communion of the saints abide with you always. Amen.